You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. Good morning. So most of my adult life, um, whenever I would begin feeling sick, I would stop doing the things that I normally did that were good for me. Um, I would stop exercising immediately because when you start feeling like maybe you're sick, you don't want to exercise, right? Uh, I would stop drinking water because I wanted something that had taste to it. I would stop eating right. Uh, because to be very, very honest with you, when I don't feel good, I find comfort in food. That's just the way things go. So I would stop doing all of the things that were good for me. And I would start doing things that were not going to help me in any shape, form or fashion. I would stop exercising. And so I would start being lazy and lethargic. I stopped drinking water. I'd start down in like diet Dr. Pepper. Stop eating right, uh, you know, Kit Kats and popcorn. That sounds good right now. I'll just lay here and, and eat some of that. And so those were my tendencies, but I also would always immediately run to the doctor. And I would get on an antibiotic faster than your head can spin. I mean, just if I felt a sniffle, if there's maybe a swollen lymph node somewhere in there, let's medicate that sucker. And so what was happening from probably the time I was a teenager all the way through young adulthood, I was not giving my immune system an opportunity to do anything. If it even like whimpered, I just put it back to bed. Hey, I'll take care of this for you. But my body was not building up any immunities whatsoever. And many of you right now may be sitting there feeling guilty like, oh, that's me too. And you know what makes it worse now is that we have things like WebMD. And so people sit at home with their Kit Kat and popcorn and they're looking it up and they're going, oh my gosh, I have bubonic plague. And, and, and we think all these crazy things. And, and what happens is we self-diagnose dangerous. But so probably about eight, nine, 10 years ago, I just, uh, I decided this is not working for me. Something's got to change. And so I began to do the opposite of everything I'd always done. When I started feeling sick, and let me throw this little preface in there, unless you have a fever. When I started feeling sick, I would keep exercising. I'd sweat that sucker out. I would start drinking even more water than I normally do. And I drink about three liters of water a day. I would try and keep eating right. Uh, And I would try to get more rest. And I would start downing immuno boosters. This is right about the time those like emergency and airborne things came out. And maybe you're a skeptic. Well, I'm a believer, friends. I drink emergency. I believe in that stuff. So what began to happen is my body began to learn how to fight off sickness. And I very rarely get sick. I hope I don't eat those words. But here's why I'm sharing that with you this morning. My old tendencies with my health very often reflect all of our tendencies in our spiritual life. We begin to feel dry or maybe far from the Lord, or like something is wrong there in our relationship with God. And let me phrase it this way. We begin to feel spiritually sick. And you know what we do? We self-diagnose because we're good at this, right? And our diagnosis is something to the effect of, I don't think God's happy with me. I must have done something to anger him. Or, um, you know, I 
haven't been reading my Bible and, and praying, and, and so this is all me, and i got to start reading my Bible and praying again. Or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe it's, I am giving, I am serving, I am in the Word, I'm doing all these things, but I think maybe I've been doing them for the wrong reasons. And my heart just is not in the right place. And so what do I need to do? I just need to stop. I need to stop doing anything and everything, but just seeking the Lord, just me and Him. What happens is we detect that there's this issue with our condition, our temporary spiritual condition, like we talked about a few weeks ago. And once again, we're deceived into believing that this has somehow affected our eternal position in Christ. And ironically, what we do is, um, our solution is that we attempt to start working our way back to God. Uh, I've got to start fixing all of this stuff. I've got to re-earn his love and approval as if we earned it in the first place. Like this, this stuff couldn't and didn't save me to begin with, but now somehow it's going to help me from here. Here's why all of this takes place. Very often we make assessments and decisions about our spiritual condition based on our feelings and our circumstances not on the truth of God's word or trust in his spirit. Very you and I, often you and I, we, we make these assessments or decisions about our spiritual condition based on our feelings and circumstances. This has to change. And so we're going to talk about how and why here in a few minutes. But this is somewhat where Paul finds the Galatians. This is one of the reasons why he's writing them this letter. And last week, Easter Sunday, we looked at Paul saying that we were all slaves to sin, but Christ redeemed us so that we could be adopted as sons and daughters of God. And as sons and daughters of God, we are now heirs in Christ. So if you will join me in Galatians chapter 4, we're going to pick back up in verse 8. And we're going to kind of read through and then come back to the beginning. Paul says, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather more importantly, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to become once more? Now you're observing days and months and seasons and years. Paul says, You're starting to do all of these things that the Jews do that in and of themselves, they don't have any value. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know, it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me. But receive me as an angel of God. In fact, you receive me as as if I was Christ himself. What then has become of the blessing that you felt? What Paul asks right there is, what has happened to your joy? For I testify that you, if possible, if need be, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? 
So at the beginning of this, Paul says, you used to be slaves to these false gods, which are not really gods to begin with. But then you came to know the one true God who found you. God found you. He drew your hearts to himself. Um, He won you over. You have now surrendered your lives to Christ, to the one who freed and redeemed you. How can you now go back to being slaves? How could you do this? Slaves to what? Well, last week in Galatians 4.3, we saw Paul say that we were all enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. Well, he chooses to use these exact same words all over again in verse 9, but he starts tossing adjectives in. Because now he says, you have become slaves again, or you're turning back. How could you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of this world. You see, for Paul, anything that leads away from total reliance and dependence on Jesus Christ, regardless of the motive or the intent, is condemnable. The weak and worthless elementary principles of this world typically lead to one of two beliefs, and this is why Paul is warning them against them. Those weak and worthless principles, they typically lead people to one of two beliefs. One of those beliefs is, I have no need of being saved. The other belief is, I do have a need for being saved, and I can do something about it. Somehow, I have a role in my own salvation. We need to bridge this from the Galatians to us, and here's why. And and we've addressed this several times already throughout this letter, throughout this sermon series. Most of us typically don't struggle with or think that we need to earn our salvation. Most of us, we are in complete agreement with Paul that it was by grace alone, through faith alone, that I was saved in Christ alone. We, we don't really buy into this idea that I had to do something to earn my salvation. Yet, we somehow along the road begin allowing ourselves, after we've been saved by grace, through faith, not of ourselves, somehow after this takes place, we allow ourselves to begin thinking, uh, believing that we now have to earn God's love and approval. So let me phrase it to you this way. We don't buy into work salvation. We don't play at that table. Nope. We save our chips and we cash them all in at the works righteousness table. That's where we play. Works righteousness. Now, an idol. When the scriptures talk about an idol, when Paul speaks about an idol, what we're talking about is anything that we put our hope, faith, and trust in other than God, anything that we begin believing might bring us satisfaction or worth other than God, that becomes an idol. And here's why I share this with you. Works righteousness always creates idols. The problem is they don't look like idols. See, it's, it's pretty crazy. It's twisted that when works righteousness uh, gets going within us, Things like church attendance, like being here today, that can become an idol. 
serving ministry itself, that can become an idol. Beginning to care more about what I am doing for God, maybe because of how it makes me feel or how I think it makes me look or whatever it may be. Sometimes even our spiritual disciplines can become an idol. And I know you're thinking, that does not sound right. Well, understand this in the application of what Paul is saying to us. Here's what Paul is saying. If you think that you will find one ounce of righteousness in doing these things, in being here this morning or in serving or whatever it is that you're doing, that reading the word of God, that that's bringing you some righteousness that you don't already have through Jesus Christ, you are worshiping something other than Christ. When we believe that Jesus has somehow left a hole or a gap that we've got to fill in, we we are not believing that his crucifixion and resurrection paid it all. We begin worshiping something other than him. And so in the midst of all of this, Paul asks a very important question, and that's what I want us to hone in on this morning. In verse 15, Paul asked this question, what then has become of the blessing that you felt? What happened to the joy that I saw in you when you came to know Christ? Let me phrase the question this way because this is how we're going to, to come at it. Who or what has stolen your joy? Who or what has robbed you of your joy? And what I love about Paul here is Paul gives the answer to this question before he even asks the question. Because the answer to the question is, I'll tell you what's robbed you of your joy. It's that you're beginning to become a slave again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of this world. In church family, I wanted to say to you this morning, I believe that this slavery still exists today and that we are in danger of it robbing us of our joy And so we need to be prepared and equipped to avoid it at all cost. Let's talk about how. Um, Last year, at at some point, someone came to me. And we had a conversation that, to be very honest with you, I've had before. And they came and they sat down with me and they said, Brian, I need to share with you that I have lost my joy in serving I've lost my joy in serving. Self-diagnosis. What do I need to do about this? So, I need to step down from everything I'm doing. Why? Well, because, you know, i got to go live like a hermit and just seek God and just me and him and him fill me back up, right? And that sounds really, really spiritual. And and in having this conversation, um, I, I didn't want to be... Um, patronizing, but I also didn't want to be assuming. And so I had to say, well, okay, I just want to make sure that you understand you actually can't find your joy in serving. Joy is only found in Christ. And and then we serve out of the overflow of that. But this person had already kind of made up their mind about what the state of things were and, and what they needed to do. But this goes back again to our typical spiritual tendencies, our self-diagnosing. The feeling is, I've lost my joy. And so the reaction, not the response, the prayerful response, but the reaction is, I need to stop serving. I need to stop 
doing whatever it is I'm doing, and I need to turn inward. I need to turn inward. I need to work harder. I need to somehow fix these issues that I've got with the Lord, and then I will somehow be refreshed and reinvigorated, and I'll be ready to serve out of a heart of joy again. In other words, I've got to find my way back to that place with God, and then I'll be ready to move back to that place with God's people. When we realize that we've been serving or giving from the wrong place or for the wrong reason, uh, maybe we've been attempting to earn God's love or his favor, or we've been trying to earn other people's approval, or maybe we've been doing it out of just this sense of duty and responsibility and drudgery, uh, whatever it may be. Understand, when we come to that conclusion... The solution is not to stop serving. The solution is to begin or to start serving from the right place and for the right reasons. When we serve and we give out of a heart and life of gratitude, overwhelming gratitude for what Christ has done for us, then we will know that joy and that joy will be poured out of us. But when we attempt to serve or to give out of a sense of duty or obligation or pressure or whatever the case may be, we will most certainly lose our joy because joy is not found in that. Joy is only found in Christ. I want to give you a couple of examples for us to think about this. Um, Like if we operated this way in other areas of our life. Okay, so kind of go with me on this. But let's say that tomorrow morning, I picked up the phone and I called the bank. Hey, Mr. Loan Officer, it's Brian. Uh, we haven't talked in a while, but I need to be honest with you and tell you. Can I put my phone down? It's, it's getting tiring. So I need to share with you that, um, you know, I have been paying my mortgage, but I've been looking at my bank book. And I've also been kind of searching myself. And, and I need you to know that probably for like the last three to six months... Um, I've been paying my mortgage out of obligation. I know, I know, I know it's, it's, it's wrong. I should totally be doing it out of gratitude. Uh, Like, Lord, look at this home you've given me. I'm so overwhelmed. Thank you. Thank you. But I just haven't been there. And so I just need some time off. Brian, I I understand. We get these calls all the time. You take as much time as you need. You know, you don't send that payment in until you are back at the place where you need to be. We've all been there. We're not going anywhere. It's all good. Kind of sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Or let's talk about our health. Maybe you started working with a trainer and you've been seeing results. You feel better. uh, You're sleeping better. Your attitude is better. You've lost some weight. You're eating right. It's all working. But tomorrow you go into your trainer and you say, hey, man, this is really going well as far as what I'm seeing. But I got to be honest with you and tell you that over the weekend, I've kind of become convicted that I've been doing this for the wrong reasons. I think I've really been more concerned about what I look like than just my overall health. No trainer worth a penny, no trainer in their right mind is going to say, oh, then you need to stop exercising. 
you need to go get your mind right and fixed on the right things. Then come back and we'll pick this sucker back up. It doesn't work that way. Yet somehow in our spiritual life, it all sounds spiritual. I just need a time out. Let me be very honest with you. We, the pastors, elders, the staff of this church, we don't want you serving to earn God's love and approval because of the fact that in Christ, you have it. We don't want you serving to earn our approval. You don't need it. You you don't need my approval when you have that of the most high God. That's the way it is. But now let me say this. We do want you to serve, to give, because you are overwhelmed. You are overwhelmed with gratitude. You are overwhelmed by God's love for you that the God of the universe would choose to call you and not just call you, but say, hey, I'm going to take you and I'm going to equip you that you're going to be a part of my body and you're going to be a functioning part of the body. And you know, Heidi had surgery on her foot this week and she said to me out in the lobby earlier, it's amazing what this little bitty part of your body, like your toe, what happens when it's not working or when somebody sticks a knife in it, right? But we tend to think, oh, I'm just this little insignificant part of the body. Nobody's going to miss me. But no, we want you to serve. We want you to give because you are overwhelmed. And it's like, I just can't help but giving back to the Lord. Are you going to be spiritually dry at times? Yes, you are. Are you going to possibly walk through weeks, maybe months, maybe even seasons where, let's just be honest, you are not delighting in what you're doing for the Lord? Probably. But let me warn you, because in fact, as a believer, you are actually going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And when, not if, but when you do, the Father says, keep walking, because I'm with you. Keep walking. Nowhere in our lives do we blow more like a leaf in the wind than when it comes to our joy in Christ. And here is why we are insecure in our relationship with Jesus. We are somehow insecure in our relationship with Jesus. This is why Paul begins this section by saying something, and he almost kind of backtracks into it again. You'll notice in verse 9, he says, now that you've come to know God, or rather, it's like he stops and says, actually, more importantly, now that you are known by God. Paul is saying, who you know, that you know God, that's definitely important. But understand, it is much more important that God knows you. And see, we assess our relationship with God and to God based on what? Feelings and circumstances. And the problem with that is our feelings and our circumstances, you know what they do? They do it all the time. They change. Possibly almost as much as our clothes. Our feelings and our circumstances, they change. However... How God sees you never changes. Never changes. 
I am imploring you, and that would be a really fancy word for begging you to take Colossians 3.3 and meditate on it constantly. That that life-changing truth that as a believer, uh, you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When God looks at you, he sees his son. Your righteousness, it is fully completed in Jesus Christ as far as God is concerned. But we don't live like that. Tim Keller says, what makes a person Christian is not so much your knowing God, but his knowing you. If you look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, in 1 Corinthians 8, 3, Paul says, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And the way that's worded and translated, it actually, in my opinion, makes it almost sound a little bit backwards. Because I believe that you could more accurately say, translate Paul here, anyone, if anyone loves God, it's because he is known by God. So in, in other words, we don't love God so that he will love us or so that he will care for us. The scriptures tell us very clearly that we love God because he has first loved us and cared for us. Oh my. Has he cared for us? Our insecurity regarding our acceptance by God, that's why we make idols. Because anytime that we think that we have to work for righteousness, we begin creating idols. It's just this cyclical pattern that begins to happen in our lives. We look at our knowing of him which wavers and fluctuates. It goes up and down like a wave on the sea, like a leaf in the wind. We we look at our knowing of him rather than his knowing of us in Christ, which never changes. But friends, when our joy is rooted in Jesus Christ, that's when our faith, that's when our hope, it will stop moving so rapidly up and down and going every which way, when our joy is rooted in Christ, we can truly begin to serve one another out of this heart that's overflowing. And as Paul is talking about this with Galatians, there are a couple of characteristics of this that he identifies that I think it's worth taking a couple minutes and pointing out. First of all, when our joy is rooted in Christ and that begins to overflow out into every part of our life, first of all, transparency is there. You'll notice that Paul says, become as I am, as I have become as you are. Paul is is saying here in some sense, people have to be able to look at our lives and, and please, please catch this next part. People have to be able to look at our lives even in the midst of hardship, um, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of we're walking through a really, really long valley. People have got to be able to look at our lives even in the midst of repentance. And they've got to see the evidence that we truly believe that Jesus is enough. They've got to see that we believe that his grace and his mercy are sufficient for us and for them. In saying, become as I am, Paul was not arrogantly saying, you should be perfect like me. That's not what he was saying at all. What Paul was saying is, 
find your joy in Jesus Christ just as I do because that is the only place you're going to find it. It's the only place where it is available. Paul says that transparency is a characteristic of our joy being rooted in Christ. And he also says that endurance is a characteristic. Endurance. If you look at verse 15, and and as Paul moves forward, what, what then has happened to your joy? What has robbed you of your joy? Understand, our joy is not the goal. I think that sometimes we wake up, and, and I know, I mean, there are days that I wake up and I'm convinced that God's ultimate goal is my joy. It is not. It is His glory. That's the goal. Um, our joy is the result of knowing Him. We almost immediately, though, we believe that suffering, we believe that walking through a valley, we believe that that dryness or whatever it is we're experiencing, when we begin to walk through that, we almost immediately think, I must have done something wrong. God is punishing me, or I need to change everything that I'm doing. I've got to stop all of this. Whatever it is I'm walking through, this must not be good. So I've got to just put it into it. But please understand, God doesn't, promise to bless us by removing the suffering. He promises to bless us in and through the suffering, in and through the pain, in and through the valley. I alluded to Psalm 23 a moment ago. I I would like for us to read it together for a moment. If you would turn there with me to Psalm 23, and I want to encourage you, read this with me today with the perspective David is writing as the same perspective as Paul is writing to the Galatians. David says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. To say that in our language, what David says is, the Lord is my shepherd. I have everything that I need. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Would any of you here and here say, anybody has to make me lie down? I mean, not me. I'm 43. If you just even say, hey, you want to lie down? I'm there. I'm good, especially in a green pasture. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. And why does he do this? For his name's sake. Uh, It was quite painful to realize that he does not lead me in paths of righteousness for my joy but for his name's sake. But now here's the kicker. Guess where the paths of righteousness lead us? Verse four, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And I know I've said this before, but really lock in here. David doesn't say, even though I lay down in the valley of the shadow of death, even though I want out of the valley of the shadow of death, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and then look what happens. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Friends, I think that without question, we want verse six. Give me some verse six, man. 
I want to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But now verse 4 and 5, uh, you can keep those. Uh, let's come up with another route to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That whole valley of the shadow of death thing and in the presence of my enemies, you can take that and stick it. Just take me right on to verse 6. And it doesn't work that way. When we begin to feel the resistance, when we begin to feel the heat go up, the refining begin, that's the point when our reaction is to stop. I got to stop everything. And honestly, friends, I believe that God at that moment is going, no, 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 keep going. I've just turned up the heat. I just cranked it up. But understand, my goal is not to harm you or to burn you. My goal is to refine you. When the scriptures teach of, of us being refined, do you know the point in that refining? It's to make us more like Christ. I want to ask you to consider something tonight, today. Think about Jesus Christ, the whole of his life that we know of, what had to have been the valley of the shadow of death for him. Yes, obviously walking out to the skull and being crucified. But when you read the scriptures, Look at the night before Jesus died, all right? And understand that just hours before Jesus was going to be in the garden and sweat drops of blood, what did he do in those hours? He got down on his hands and knees and washed his disciples' feet. Jesus, I mean, if, at that point, we're calling time out, right? I am not serving anybody in this moment. A few hours later, the Son of God is crying out, Father, if there's any other way to do this, I'm listening. The point of the refining is to make us more like our Savior. I'm starting to go a couple times a week to this place where there's this guy who's really, really serious about getting you in shape. And I got to have this physical assessment the other day and he told me several things that I already knew, but he's told me what I needed to do about them. But so this morning I wanted to share with you, one of the things that I learned was I have several muscles, my hips, my hamstrings, on and on and on that are way too tight. And so he begins showing me, here's what you're going to have to do to fix this. And I want to entertain you this morning and just show you. I'm supposed to twice a day lay down on the ground like this, all right? And I have to lift this leg up. And not only do I have to lift it up, because I know you're thinking right now, Brian, you're like almost ballerina straight there. I mean, that's really good. No, no, that's not good enough. I have to take this band and wrap around my foot and pull my foot so that it's a straight leg, as straight as possible. And see, already right now, this does not feel good. And then take this leg and straighten it out and bring it up and down, all while pulling this leg down at me. And I do this like five times each legs. And again, in case I didn't mention it, I do this twice a day. And I will tell you uh, that it feels like my hamstrings and my calves at several different points are going to just explode right out of my leg. But I have to push through the point of pain. Now, my goal here is not to tear something or break something, but it's to stretch it. And it's to stretch it past, way past the point where my brain is saying, that's good. No, I wasn't kidding. That's good. You should stop there. Just got to keep right on going through that. 
We don't like being stretched. We don't really like it at all. When you read 2 Corinthians chapter 12 though, you're once again humbled even more by the Apostle Paul. Because he's writing the Corinthians and he's telling them, see we don't know if it was the same illness or not, but when Paul was with the Corinthians, he had something come over him. He was with the Galatians, he was sick. But Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he's writing them and he was saying that this thing had plagued him and it was so bad. He says in 2 Corinthians 12, 8, three times I pleaded with the father, take this from me. He begged God three times, God, remove this thing from me. And the father's response to him was, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in your weakness. What did this sense of pain, what did this sense of weakness drive Paul to? Well, when you read 2 Corinthians, you know, it drove him to a greater dependence and reliance on Jesus. And friends, often we lose our joy because the Lord begins to walk us through the pain, the weakness, the trial, and we don't want any part of that. And so we run or we step down, we stop serving, we turn inward, and we think, I got to work my way back. But I want you to understand that often when we bail out, we are missing some supernatural things of God happening. Because when you read Paul and you read David, First of all, you, you, you see that when you bail out, um, you are missing the comfort of God. You're missing the opportunity to be comforted by God, to rest in his presence. That green grass lying down there that we talked about a few minutes ago, we, we get robbed of that. Why? Well, because I, I think I should work for this on my own. And where that leads me is to falling over by the dried up river, not lying down in the green grass. We miss the opportunity to be anointed by God, seeing his strength perfected in our weakness. Let me tell you something. Anytime that you hear about the anointing of God, whether it's on TV or wherever it may be, if, if humility and vulnerability and weakness are not present, you can forget the anointing of God. And just to be really blunt with you, I I think that we also just miss plain flat being used by God, experiencing his goodness and mercy pour into our lives and then poured back out overflowing into the lives of others. Why does all of this happen? It happens because very often we make assessments and decisions about our spiritual life based on our feelings and our circumstances, not on the truth of God's word or trust in his spirit. Joy is only found in knowing Jesus Christ, the one who redeemed us and saved us. The path to knowing Christ is often going to lead us through the valley of the shadow of death. And so friends, I want to ask you this morning, will you keep walking? Because God has some incredible things that he wants to do in you and through you. But if you and I, we bail out, we might miss them. If you've lost your joy, I want to encourage you, don't run from the things that the Lord has called you to. Run to him. Know that his power and his strength are perfected and revealed in your humility 
and your weakness. I also want to encourage you on a daily basis to preach the gospel to yourself. I want you to become your favorite preacher. That every morning you're telling yourself, Father, this morning I am here to just remind myself to to praise you and thank you that in Christ there's nothing I can do, nothing I can do to make you love me any more than you already do. There's nothing I have ever done that will cause you to love me less. Father, remind me today that your presence and your approval are all I need for everlasting joy. And I want to teach you another part of the gospel prayer this morning. That we also begin to pray, Lord, as you have been to me, so I will be to others. That won't happen if we bail out. Keep walking. What's robbed you of your joy? What's robbed us of our joy is if we think we will ever find satisfaction or worth or strength in anything other than Jesus Christ. So let's don't even chase down that path. Let's pray. Father, we want to confess to you that we very, very often uh, we try and self-diagnose things and we're very, very often very wrong. Lord, help us today to better understand and, and not only accept, but Lord, just rest in knowing that our lives are now hidden in Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you, the Son of God who knew no sin, that you took our sin upon you, that you bore the wrath of God, that you, you paid it all so that in you, that we might become the righteousness of God. Lord, our desire today is that we would be a people who are just spewing out and overflowing with the unshakable joy that can only come from knowing you. Lord, we pray that you would just spill over out of our lives into the lives of others. Lord, in the way that we serve our church family, in the way that we love our neighbors, Lord, in the way that we bear the burdens of our coworkers, Lord, in the way that we love our families, Lord Jesus, teach us how to rest. Teach us how to rest in you. We pray that you would empty us of our pride. Fill us with the Spirit.
in these next moments as we respond to the Lord, I just encourage you, open up your heart to whatever he's saying to you, the spirit is leading you to. Let your response be, yes, Lord. The foot of the cross, the steps, if you need to come and pray, please come. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ and, and you don't have joy, some of our staff, our pastors, leaders are going to be in the back at the tables. They would love to talk with you and pray with you. Lord Jesus, be glorified in these moments. Transform our hearts and minds for the sake of your name. Let's stand and worship together. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.